Ready to go. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 8 through 28. Uh, you're going to like tonight. Tonight we're going to finish up Proverbs chapter 12. And I start a new approach to teaching these morals, morsels of truth. The way I was teaching Proverbs was a verse at a time. I'm not going to do that anymore. We're going to group them together in some headings so I can give you a full understanding of what's going on. And I'm going to give you a way to help grasp more of the storyline of Proverbs tonight. I'm breaking the proverb chapter up into easy, uh, easy to digest sections. And first of all, I'll give you the King James, and then I'm going to give you the more digestible message translation. The message translation is not a Bible that you should take alone. It's something that you should take to help understand the storyline of something. Because sometimes it can be pretty cryptic and pretty, uh, pretty secretive in the Bible if you, if you don't understand the these and the thous. And even in the New King James, sometimes it's hard to follow these two-liners. So I'll give you them in the King James, but then I'm going to give it to you in the message. So. My, my idea to do that is to light up these words more clearly for all of us. Then I'll teach on the headings of each section. Uh, so here's how the rest of Proverbs chapter, chapter 12 will break down. We'll teach about wise living. We'll teach about wise people take advice. We'll teach about, by the way, the, the converse of that is that dumb people don't take advice. Wise speech brings joy and healing, and worry will make you a coward and a cheat. Uh, that was a message that I preached a long time ago, but... If, it's pretty nicely with it. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 12, verses, the first section, verses 8 through 12 from the King James. A man shall be commended according to his wisdom, but he that is of a perverse heart shall be despised. He that's despised and has a servant is better than he that honors himself and lacks bread. A righteous man regards the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He that tills his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that follows vain persons is void of understanding. The wicked desires the net of evil men, but the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. Now, most of that, if you read that, doesn't sound like anything you can, you can apply. It sounds kind of confusing. So I want to give you the message, then I want to teach about it so you can see what he's saying. The message says this, uh, wise living. A person who talks sense is honored. Airheads are held in contempt. I love that. I love that. Better to be ordinary and work for a living than act important and starve in the process. That's phenomenal. We're going to talk about that tonight. Good people are good to their animals. The good-hearted bad people kick and abuse them. And we're going to talk about animals tonight, how it's a barometer of a person's personality. Uh, also, uh, the one who stays on the job has food for the, on the table. The witless, I mean somebody who doesn't have a mind, chase whims and fantasies. I'll tell you about that. What the wicked construct finally falls to ruin, while the roots of the righteous give life and, and more life. So, let's begin. Uh, as we've seen this, Proverbs 12.8 is t telling us, believe it or not, Proverbs 12.8 is saying something that's pretty powerful. It says, the Bible says that being praised by good men is good and it should be sought. So we should look for the praise of good men, good men. And this is what the Bible says in Proverbs 22.1. Uh, 22, uh, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. What people think about you when you're not there is extremely important. It's very important how people, what kind of taste you leave in people's mouth for all of us. Uh, what do they think about when, they, when, they're, when they're with you or when you leave them? Uh, do they have a different thought than what they've vocalized to you? A good name is extremely important and it is to be sought above riches, Solomon says. When I hear people say I could care less what other people think, I sometimes wonder if we know what we're saying. I wonder if we really understand that. Now it's true that you can't please everyone. Somebody say amen. There's a whole bunch of people you're not going to be able to please. And don't knock yourself out trying, because sometimes you just can't. But that's no excuse not to try to live a good reputation. He's saying, even though you may not be able to please everyone, you still need to have a good reputation. We should never live our lives defensively, but always offensively. We should always be somebody who is on the offense. 
When we're in a defense mode, we can't go forward. And we can lose all hope of personal concern for how we live. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 52. A very interesting scripture about Jesus. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was well-liked. And why was he well-liked? Look at it. Jesus grew in favor with God and man. And watch. How did he happen? How did that happen? It's directly resulted from his growth in wisdom. And that's the secret to wise living. It's what you will gain by studying Proverbs. If you study this with me today, and you and I both apply it, and we apply it every week, then we should be able to gain a good reputation by applying these things. We should be able to grow in our wisdom and have fine favor not only with God, but also with man. Man should be able to say, you know what, that, that person, that, that's a good person. That's a person that I, that I want to be around. A perverse heart belongs to those who are not motivated by God, uh, but rather by self and selfishness and greed and envy and lust. All that causes the heart to turn perverse. You know, Cheryl and I, like you and your family, we have people around us that are family. We have people around us that are friends. We have people around us that are acquaintances, that are neighbors. And uh, there are a lot of people that, uh, that you have that are phenomenal people. You love being around them. They add to you. And then there's some of those people that you'd just rather not be around. How many of you have some people like that? Only me. How many of you have some people like that? It's all right. I just counseled a man that, ha that was having trouble with somebody that was a, who used to go to church with him. Hasn't, uh, he says, I don't even want to be around him anymore. And, and the, what the man did to him was atrocious. And he approached him, like the Bible said, and the man never did anything about it. And I said, you know what? You're probably better off not being around him. There were people that Jesus was not around. He was not around the Pharisees. He didn't want to be around them. They came around him. And Herod, he wouldn't go see Herod. They, Herod desired to see him, and he wouldn't see him. So sometimes it's okay to, take, to put certain people at a distance. That's not you starting that. That you're responding to it. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Big, big difference. So, uh, a perverse heart belongs to those who are not motivated by God. Uh, and Solomon says these types of people will be despised by others if they're not motivated by God. You know, if I have no one to appeal to, uh, if I have a friendship or a family member that, and they're not Christian, I can't pray to God to change them because we have a free will. Now, if they're Christian, I can say, God, show them something in the Word. Show them this. Enlighten them. Uh, it's enmity to those who don't know Him. It's enmity to those that they're not going to listen to anything, no matter how much you, how much you pray for them as that way. So they have, a, they have to have a, a revolutionary change. Then he goes on to Proverbs 12. Then. It seems like it's not related, but it is. It talks about being ordinary and working for a living. Wow. It's opposite of what the world we live in is. Solomon says you should strive to be ordinary. Man, that is totally against American ideals. We live in a world of Kardashians and the mega famous and the superstar athletes and the over-the-top movie stars. And the more you have, the more important you are. That is absolutely not true. Uh, I, am, I get sick into my stomach when I think of people that play up to people who have money. It sickens me. It sickens me to my stomach when I, when I see people more interested in a rag magazine at Walmart than the person in front of them that's talking to them. What in the world does Tom, does, well, I don't even know his name. What, is, what in the world does, um, what's his name? What in the world does Tom Cruise have that, I want, that I'm interested in? I don't care what he does. He has no bearing on my life. My signature and my autograph is more important to me than Tom Cruise's. That's not, that's not, van, that's not vanity. He has no bearing in my life. None of them do. He wants to entertain me and I want to see a movie if it's good, that's fine. But that's it. It's a movie. It's not real life. Matter of fact, it's not his real life anyway. Or anybody's for that matter. So, Solomon's giving you a down-to-earth understanding of life. He's talking about being ordinary. We live in a world where people are just trying to be extraordinary. Most people are never going to be extraordinary according to the world. Let's face it, we're not all going to be movie stars. 
We're not only going to be athletes. You know, I, I understand. So I'm not trying to dash anybody's dreams. If you got a talent, go for it. But you know, I look at I looked at uh, you know my my grandson was playing ball, and of course he was with it's when he was first starting to play ball. And you know, when they're real little, it's not really even baseball. It's bunch ball. Somebody hits a ball and they all run to it and they're playing with the dirt and they don't know what they're doing. And some guy was in the stands behind me and he was screaming at his son. I looked at this guy and I'm not judging him, but I looked at him and if he ever played any sport, I'm, I'm out of eight the stands. He never played a sport in his life. Yet he was vicariously living through that son and he was insulting him. And so what I started doing in top of my voice was praising my grandson, who was probably worse than his son. <laughs> Because it's not about that. You th they think they put these kids in, in sports and they're going to become a superstar. Do you know the chances of that? They're, it's so small, it's not even funny. And so, yeah, if you have a talent, that's wonderful. But that is the one in a million. That is not every single kid that plays any sport. I still think they should play sports, don't get me wrong. But don't think that that's what life's about. If that kid grows up and becomes, as a matter of fact, if he becomes a superstar, he's going to have more chances of getting a divorce than if he wasn't. His life is going to have more chances of being off the rails than if he didn't. So what are we asking for? How many are with me tonight? I know, I'm preaching to the choir. So we live in a world where people are more concerned about image over substance. With what people think about them via social media. Rather than who they really are in a real social setting. So if somebody goes out, and you know these people. They're on Facebook. They're on Twitter, they go out and they're at parties all the time, or they're taking vacations, and they're snapping all these pictures, but they have horrible lives. They think smiling in front of a camera and putting it all over the internet makes them something because they have something you don't have. That's pathetic. That shows me how small brain people are. Just because somebody can smile in a camera and uh, maybe have a glass of wine in their hands doesn't necessarily mean that they're having a great life. How many are with me? I'm being real honest with you. That is not what life is. Life is a social setting. Life is what you do every day. Pretense over character. We live in it. Pretense over character. And words over actions. Uh, this proverb is as true in 2018 as it was in 900 BC when Solomon wrote it. The simple, honest man is better than the pretentious fool. That's what he's saying. Solomon saw men living for public image rather than working for the rewards of pleasure and a security at home. If you go through life and you're older and you sit back and you say, you know what? I have security. I feel good. I, I get up in the morning and, you know, my life isn't isn't hitting the headlines of, any, of the Birmingham news, which is going to funk probably soon. Uh, it's not hitting the social papers, but I feel really good about my relationship with God and the people around me. Man, you've done something that most people can't do. That's what life's about. Uh, if your family, you, carry, you have your family and the love of your family. He saw successful men humbled by God, uh, unable to quit their former lifestyles and get a job. He named, he warned against image and encouraged contentment with life's modest successes. Timothy says, in Timothy it says that if you, uh, to, to mind your own business, work with your hands and have a good life. That's an amazing statement. That's what life is about. It's about being comfortable as far as who you are in your own skin. But in America, it's image, image, image. It's amazing how many people live for image today. Solomon says they're living badly. The media promotes getting more, peer pressure fuels it, and every credit, and easy credit makes it happen, as more and more people lie, live above their means. Ironically, Facebook has done more to deface reality and who people really are than actually to enhance it. It's a look at me, and I'm not telling you that it's all wrong, I'm telling you that when people, and you know people like this, I don't know when they have time to breathe. There are some people, I'll put something on Facebook, maybe for uh, whatever it is, whether it's religious or whatever it is, usually that's the way we do it, I use that primarily for, for uh, speaking about God and things there. And the same people who I don't have anything against 
are right there. I mean, it could be 2 o'clock in the morning. They're right there. It's like, is this thing grafted to you? How many know people like that? It's just unbelievable. Uh, and that's not how you should live your life. You're living your life through some type of media, some type of media or some type of, some type of uh, social uh, agent is not the way you're to live your life. Uh, Solomon wants you to know there's nothing wrong with being an ordinary working man or woman and, for, and working for a living. Matter of fact, there's everything right with it. It's the way to live. Then Proverbs 12.10 tells us a huge nugget of truth. It says, good people are good to their animals. Bad people kick and abuse them. Wow, that is pretty amazing when you think about it. It's a verse for all animal lovers. And it's amazing. Solomon says that you can tell the heart of a person by how they treat their animals. That's pretty interesting. You want to judge somebody, and you can. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. That word in Matthew is Croesus. It says, don't condemn anybody to hell. But it does say, judge among yourselves who is wise. So you can, you can actually have an assessment of someone, uh, the Bible says. So you want to have a good assessment of someone? Find out how they treat animals. That's a secret to be found in those who love animals. And I'm not talking to people who, who put animals above people. That's all I'm talking about. A good man is merciful. That's what Solomon's saying. He's kind. He's ruled by, by uh, pity and compassion. Uh, he can't be mean or, or hard. But the wicked are cruel. Even the, their kindness is harsh. Just study serial killers for a little bit. You find out how much they tortured animals when they were young. Find out how much they tortured insects. That may sound like nothing, but that's a, that's a sign. Something's going wrong right from the beginning. Um, they, they lack the tender, quiet uh, spirit of, a, of, a, of the righteous who's concerned even for animals. They can't be kind and merciful. They're, they're like their master, a murderer from the beginning. It took me a while to learn this truth, by the way, but animals and pets are, are often barometers to our real natures. I grew up in a city. I grew up without any, we never had any animals. So I didn't know what I was missing until I married Cheryl, who is, she's like queen of the wild kingdom. And so, uh, you know, I remember when I first married her, I, her father put me aside and he said, you know, she wants a horse. And he, she said, Dad, you never got me a horse. And he said, well, it wasn't my place. You need to get her a horse. <laughs> I got her horses, chickens, goats, you name it, we've had it. And we still have some. But it's that gentleness that was there. And I learned something from it. It took me a while. Let me just tell you. The lesson is that, uh, is not just the care of animals, but the illustration of compassion. The Lord ordained merciful care of animals from, the work, from, the, uh, from working to birds. Listen to what it says in Scripture. It says, if a, bird's nest, if a bird's nest chance to be found thee, thou shalt not take the dam, the, the female, with the young. But thou shalt in any wise let the dam go, let the female go, and take the young to thee, that it may be well with thee, and that thou may prolong thy days. Are you kidding me? Now, by the way, back then they ate birds. It was, it was just like a bird is, is just like a chicken for us. And they ate them. They said, don't take that female. Uh, there's something, it's giving a prohibition. Uh, and obviously, you had a choice. If you were hungry, you could take all of those and eat them. But God said, don't do that. You want to prolong your life? It's not going to come because of your eyes to have something. It's going to come because you're going to have some mercy. He goes on to say this. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Now, a lot of pastors use that saying about, about uh, I've heard pastors say that about um, being paid right. <laughs> I don't know, they'll use anything. You've got to pay me because I'm muzzling the corn. Pastors aren't muzzling corn. They're not treading out the corn. But what it means is don't put a muzzle on an ox because they can't breathe when they're, ex when they're exercising work. And he's saying, be gentle, be careful with these things. They're working for you. Why would you put a muzzle on them for your own good? Why would you do that? You want to let them work and, and don't restrict them. So the Bible gives us that. It tells us that. So... Uh, cruelty to animals is against God's word. 
It's always against God's word. And it shows something. I've done studies on a lot of different subjects. And when I studied serial killers, almost 90% uh, of them were cruel to animals when they were young. Now, I'm not saying everybody that's cruel to animals can become a serial killer, but every serial killer that I've studied was cruel to animals. So you ready for my animals tonight? Now, if you can't say awe at any one of these pictures, we're going to follow you out to your car. Ah, see what I told you? All right. <laughs> I love that one. One tiny horse. You got to love animals for that one. Not sure what they are. That's a chinchilla. It's my last one. All right. So, hedgehog, excuse me. So then working down from his checklist, Solomon goes a little bit further. We'll get off animals for a moment. And he says this. He tells us in verse 11 that the one who stays on the job instead of chasing get-rich-quick uh, schemes will always have food on his table. He was, he's using a farming as an example. This is hard work. Tilling is hard work. And what's the secret to success in this proverb? Well, it's this. You know, farmers have to have faith. Uh, in the springtime, they, or whatever the, you know, springtime, they, they plow and they, and, they, uh, and they plant corn and they plant their, their crops. And most of the time, they've got to go in debt to do it. Most of the time, they've got to borrow to do it. And, and they, uh, they sweat. It's terrible. It's a, it's a horrible type of uh, existence because it's very difficult. It's very hard. You've got to plow that ground. You gotta, especially before there was any type of equipment. But they've got to go in debt. They get no income until they trust the rain and, the, and, they, and they trust the sunshine to bring their crops up. So, uh, but one day, if you're a farmer and you're doing all this and you're financially strapped and you're, and you're sweaty and you just hate every day because it's so hard and you're breaking your back, one day you come home and uh, sweaty and filthy to discover an escape. A vain person in a fine suit and driving a brand new sports car is there to charm you and your wife about his exciting life with a business opportunity. He says, join us. Surely you don't want to be a loser all your life. Sign up to be a distributor, buy my, buy my overpriced products, and get rich. So you, sit, so you attend a sales meeting, and after a prayer, there's always there a prayer and a sales meeting, a pledge to the flag and singing God Bless America, a beautiful couple uh, claiming to be millionaires prance across the stage, flashing Rolexes and fo uh, photos of fancy houses, beaming with happiness. They tell about quitting farming and spending half their year sailing uh, their custom yacht in the Caribbean. Which is, what is vain about this success? Well, they don't show the 50,000 poor distributors in their downline where they've extorted into buying overpriced products to pay for a yacht, their yacht through high-pressure tactics, product misrepresentation, and promises of get-rich-quick. Those schemes are pyramid schemes. And the people who get rich are the only the ones at the top that start them. Uh, but people fall for it more and more in every day. They fall for it all the time. Um, the bottom line, there are no get-rich-quick schemes that work. None. I've had everybody on the planet come to me and ask me to do this and do that. I think I told you, maybe I told the other class, one guy in my church came to me selling gold coins. He said, here's the deal. You buy three gold coins and you, sent, you give two of them away uh, to, the, to the names on this list and you'll get five back the next week. He said, let me tell you something. If I buy three gold coins, they're going in my drawer. I'm not giving them to anybody. I'm not that's me having faith in somebody else, then it's not going to happen. There's no such thing as get rich quick. You want to get rich? You work hard. You work every day, and you be wise with your money. 
And so we have to be really careful. How many people just get messed up with that? So this is the way to live. The bottom line, no get rich quick scheme. Solomon is warning us. Then Proverbs 14, 15, he says this, and I'm going quickly. Only simpletons believe everything they're told. The prudent carefully consider their steps. Somebody wants to go in business with you, you need to scrutinize it. You need to find out who they are. What they're, you know what I would do if, if I went in business with somebody, I'd find out where their debts were. I find out, how much do you owe anybody? And they may say to me, it's none of your business. Like, yes, it is. If you use the money in this business to help pay for your well-being, then I want to know how far in debt you are. You'd be surprised how many businesses I had come in between from people who got together uh, that were Christians that thought they had a blue sky scenario. You've got to look at the worst case scenario. Somebody say amen. Well, none of you will say amen. Somebody say amen. What made Bill Gates a millionaire? Let me tell you what made him a millionaire. Time and chance. That's what made him a millionaire. He did the right thing at the right time and he became a millionaire. He's not the smartest apple in the bunch. He's just did something. He's, he's intelligent, but not the smartest apple in the bunch. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says it's God's providence. Uh, for, e for every Bill Gates, there are, a, there are 10 million men who make an average income and 1 million, 1 million losers who hurt their families chasing illusionary success. But you can reduce chance and, and harness time for, for plenty of bread by working your... Working your farm, working your job every single day. You may not like it, but if you're wise, at the end of your life, or towards the end of your life, you'll have something to show for it. Proverbs 12, 12 is a wrap up to the wise living. It says this, the wicked covet the proceeds of wickedness, but the root of righteousness bears fruit. So you keep doing the same thing you're doing. You know, that should be good news for all of us who work hard. It should be good news for every one of us that have worked hard. It should be good news for everyone that, that go to a job every day, because God's going to bless you. Okay, so here is the investment wrap-up uh, secret to, bring, to bearing fruit. Let me give it to you. The biblical model for true success. Working hard, enjoyment of simple domestic pleasures, living a contented life, and living a godly life. If I can give it to you scripture-wise, it's this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be let us be there with content. I was talking to a guy the other day, and let me tell you something. If I could put it in a lottery sense, you've won the lottery. You've won the human humanity lottery. We are 5% of the world's population. We consume 95% of the world's goods. Why weren't you or I born in a thatched hutch in Laos or Vietnam? You know, there's some people on this planet, almost 45% of people in Africa, that for their whole job every day is to find out when they wake up in the morning is to search for their first meal. Their second job is to search for their lunch. And their third job is to search for their, for their, meal, for their third meal, their, their supper. And they go to bed many times hungry. Why aren't you and I that way? Why were we born where we were born? It's the providence of God. So watch. It says, and still Americans aren't content. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drove men down, drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after, uh, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The Bible is explicit on how we're to live. First Thessalonians. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have a lack of nothing. That's a pretty powerful statement. So, my secret formula for failure. Unbelievable business opportunities, plus super investment and return chances, plus rah-rah hype it up stories, plus more consumer spending than investing spending, equals poverty. It's vanity. You want to see my solution for success? Hard work, plus savings, plus safe investments, a balanced portfolio, uh, plus patience, 
because if you're really investing in something, you're going to have to have patience with it. More investments, plus more investment spending than consumer spending. If you consume everything you get, you're going to be poor. But if you start to put a little bit away, you'll be, you'll, you'll have, you'll be prosperous. In 1970, I may have told you this before, for every dollar Americans owned, or earned, for 1970, for every dollar they earned, they had, they saved 20 cents. It's called the multiple propensity to consume and the multiple propensity to save. 80 cents of every dollar was, was spent, 20 cents was saved. Today, for every dollar Americans own, uh, uh, earn, the multiple propensity to consume, for every dollar they earn, they spend $1.95. They save nothing. Most Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. So are they going to be rich when they get older? Are they going to, have, are they going to be satisfied with their older? Of course not. So that's tilling your land. And that's what Solomon's telling us. You still with me tonight? All right. Proverbs 12, 13, 16, next, next section. The wicked is snared by the transgression of his lips. There's your mouth again. But the just shall come out of trouble. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hand shall be rendered unto him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens unto counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covers shame. Let's put it in English. Here you go. It says, wise people take advice. The gossip of bad people gets them in trouble. The conversation of good people keeps them out of it. Well-spoken words bring satisfaction. Well-done work has its own reward. Fools are headstrong and they do what they want. Wise people take advice. Fools have short fuses and explode all too quickly. The prudent quietly shrug off insults. Pretty powerful when you think about it. Uh, wise people take advice. So Proverbs 12, 13 and 14 says, if you haven't learned it by now, you need, you need to. Our mouths can either get us in trouble, big trouble, or they can get us out of trouble. How many times have you said to yourself, why did I say that? How many times have you said, oh, I shouldn't have said that? The beauty of discretion and wisdom is to continue, consider your words before they come out of your mouth. Uh, we, used to, we, we need to learn what to speak, when to speak, and what to say. By the way, women speak on average from 20,000 to 30,000 30, words a day. 20,000 to 30,000 words a day. Men speak from 7,000 to 15,000. Well, how many of you see a problem right off the bat? So, here you go. You ready for it? Men. Women speak about 20,000 words a day, the low side. 13,000 more than the average man. 13,000 more. So, a husband read an article to his wife about how many words women use a day, the highest part. 30,000 to man's 15,000. The wife replied, the reason has to be because we have to repeat everything to men. <laughs> we do. Women use, listen to this, women use ing words, ing words, much more than men do, especially certain ones. Statistics tell us that they use baking, 235 uses men, 39. Nursing, nurturing, singing, volunteering, and shopping, 445. That's one of their, one of their ing words they like to use. Men, of course, use grilling, even though women do too, and gaming and engineering. So we even talk differently. And so then there are the five words that women use that men need to pay attention to. If you're married, or if you're thinking of getting married, or if you even know any women, you need to know these words. First one is fine. This is the word women use to end an argument when they are right and you need to shut up. Fine. Five minutes. If she's getting dressed, it means a half an hour. Don't complain. Nothing. This is the calm before the storm. This means something and you should be on your toes. Arguments that begin with nothing usually end in fine. Go ahead. This is a dare, not a permission. Don't do it. A loud sigh. This means she's, she thinks you're an idiot. And she wonders why she's wasting her time standing here and arguing with you. You've got to learn those things. If you don't understand those things, you've got to learn them. But besides husbands and wives and men and women, Solomon is giving us some, some good advice. He's giving us some rules for not letting our mouths get us into trouble. 
Your success or failure depends on your ability to rule your tongue. If you don't learn to rule your tongue and control your, your and guard your speech, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. It's so much better to think pure thoughts and reduce your words, slow your speech down, and speak carefully with an eye to the consequences. James tells you that. And let me tell you, the Bible talks about this. It says, For we all stumble many times. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle also his own body. The Bible is explicit in telling us some things. Listen to what the Word says about our godly speech. In Colossians, it brings rewards in life. Proverbs, it helps to those in trouble. It's always thankful in 1 Thessalonians. It doesn't include corrupt words, Ephesians. It doesn't speak evil of dignities, Jude. It doesn't talk foolishly, Ephesians. It doesn't backbite, Proverbs. Blesses enemies, Matthew. Warns friends, Leviticus. Comforts the feeble-minded, 1 Thessalonians. And honors parents, Deuteronomy. That's what, your, that's what the wise speech does, and I'll wait until you take that. So Proverbs 12, then Proverbs 12, 15 to 16 talks about the fools, and I'm going quick, have short fuses and explode too quickly, whereas the prudent, the godly, quietly shrug off insults. Well, talk about going against human nature. I love this. Learning to ignore certain people is one of the great paths to inner peace. You need to really hear it. Life gets easier when you delete those who make it difficult. It's extremely important for us to understand that. And that is not against Christianity. That's right down the line. Jesus would, would be impaired if he was around people that made life difficult. And so he stayed with the people who wanted to hear him. And so it's very important we understand that. And sometimes we think that that's against Christianity. It is not. Uh, then Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 to 23. Our next section, and I'm going quick. There is, his that, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Lying lips, going again on the mouth, are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. I put it under this. Wise speech brings joy and healing. Rash language cuts the name, same verses. But there is healing in the words of the wise. Truth lasts. Lies are here today, gone tomorrow. Evil scheming distorts the, distorts the schemer. Peace planning brings joy to the planner. No evil can overwhelm a good person, but the wicked have their hands full of it. God can't stomach liars, and he really can't. He loves the company of those who keep their word. Prudent people don't flaunt their knowledge. Talkative fools broadcast their silliness. Pretty interesting. Your success or failure is obviously being talked about by how you talk. Wise speech brings joy and healing, the Bible says. These verses uh, tell us to ask ourselves some questions. These verses are about the words we speak to others. What is your conversation like? Is the other person bleeding after they listen to you or are they growing? If I told you right now, because there's life and death in the power of the tongue, if I told you right now to turn to someone that's next to you and just turn to them right now, just look at someone right now, and I want you to find something, don't say it to them, but I want you to find something you can compliment them on. Now don't tell them, don't tell them yet. Don't tell them, don't tell them. Don't tell them yet. All right, now tell them the compliment. Hey, you just made some friends for life, didn't you? Okay, now listen. What if I told you, what if I, okay, enough of the compliments. What if I told you to turn to someone and find something you didn't like about them? Don't do it, don't do it. So, so, <laughs> so how, but how many times are you around people, how many times are you around people that'll take a shot at you? How many times are you around people that make you feel good? Which would you rather be around? That's what Solomon's saying. It's very simple. Get around people who are going to lift you up. 
Get around people who are going to encourage you. Don't get around people who are going to be negative to you. He's saying you've got to choose the people you're around. And it's really important. You want to be around people that are really going to build you up. There's enough people that will tear you down. So, you will stir their anger if you tell them something bad. You will, you will, you will tell them something that's going to hurt them. They'll, they'll, they'll avoid you in the future. The Bible says this, your tongue has the power to direct. It has the power to kill and it has the power to bless. It has the power to death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so the Bible is telling us to speak life. Your tongue has that power. Um, what should our speech be like to others? Proverbs, like a tree of life to others. It should be sweet as a honeycomb and bring inner health to others. It should frame someone's life in beauty. Think about this. This is scripture. Have you ever talked to someone and what they said say made you feel alive? pretty or handsome and lifted you up. That's what Solomon says our speech should do to others. Not false vanity, not false compliments, but it should be lifting people up. Cheryl's probably the only one in here tonight that knew me before I was saved. She's probably the only one. And she knows that I had a cutting sarcasm. The Bible says that your speech can cut people down. I could not destroy people with just a quick one-liner and I often did it. You could never insult me without getting ten back. Uh, I could verbally assassinate anyone who, who was against me. She knows that. She knows the way I was. Uh, she worked with me and she saw me do that. I had a quick, sharp, cutting dialect. Don't ever try to insult me because, listen, I'd leave you wanting to crawl away in a hole someplace. My salvation instantly healed my mouth, by the way, which was also very filthy. Uh, it was hard to believe, but the cursing came out every other word. So here's my confession tonight. It's good for the soul. Can I be sarcastic? You bet. Can I be critical? Sure. And hide it inside of humor? Absolutely. Especially when I feel I'm being verbally att attacked. The good news uh, is it rarely, and I mean very rarely, if ever, happens since my salvation. God took it away. But I'm capable of it. My challenge is to always speak well. It's always to uplift. It's never to rail back and to be calm, peaceful, and non-confrontational. Some of these things that come in through the emails and some of the things that come in, some people just want to take pot shots at people. Well, the old me, every time I read one of them, man, I'm firing something off. But I have to back off. Sometimes I just say, you know what, it doesn't matter. You just can't continue to ang be angry with a person who, who works like that. You can't be angry with somebody who's not angry back. So what should our speech be like to others? I just read it to you. As we go on to the last of the section tonight, and I close, the hand of the diligence shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Heaviness in the heart of a man makes it stoop, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous are more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduces them. The slothful man roasts not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. In the way of righteousness is life. In the pathway thereof there is no death. So let me put it in the English uh, message. Worry will make you a coward and a cheat. The diligent find freedom in their work. The lazy are oppressed by work. Worry weighs us down. A cheerful word picks us up. A good person survives misfortune, but a wicked life invites disaster. A lazy life is an empty life, but early to rise gets the job done. Good men and women travel right into life. Sin's detours takes you straight to hell. Wow. Okay. As we continue to go on tonight and we get to the, to the last part of it, let me just talk to you about this. First off, let's talk about worry. I once preached the message with the title, Worry Will Make You a Coward and a Cheat. And that's what I named this section. Worry will make you a coward and a cheat. How? A coward because you don't fully face what you're worrying about. When you worry about something, you're not facing it. A cheat because every time you worry, you take your present life and put it on the back burner. And you don't enjoy your present life. And so worry is the worst thing you could possibly do. Unfortunately, even children worry, believe it or not. Uh, well, before I do that, let me do this, because I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, it's talking about a lazy man also. It's talking about somebody who is who's not wanting to work. Uh, well, lazy people 
hate any kind of work, and he relates him to sloths, before I get you to worry. Sloths. That's South American sloth. That's all they do all day is they lay around. Worry, even children worry. From ages two to four years old, the fear of, of the potty, fear of the dark, fear of shadows, sleeping alone, weather, and fear of loud noises. Five to seven years old, fear of the dark, fear of the fire, bad guys, taking tasks, peer, peer rec, uh, rejection, doctors and shots, and bugs and animals. Eight to 11, uh, bad guys and ghosts, being home alone, dying, sickness, school failures, or throwing up at school, believe it or not, and poor rejection. Uh, when they're 12 to 18, they worry about their safety, sickness, throwing up at school, it's still there. Failure in school or in sports, school presentations, how they look to others, and violence and global issues. They're starting to mature. 18 to 20, germs and health, being homeless, death, academic performance, romantic rejection, life purpose, and being an adult. Adults, we all worry. Mr. Worry, we worry about family, friends, foes in the future. We worry about responsibilities, problems, persons, pressures, places, fears, failures, and foes, health and wealth tests and trials and safety and security. So we are geared to worry. Uh, I did something and I was trying to get this to show you. It's all mental. It's all about our minds. The battle is always in your mind. Worry will, will, will uh, happen in your mind and it, uh, it actually will, will hurt you. So I did some studying on I wanted to give you some uh, things that mentally strong people do to stop worrying. And let it soak in and take a picture of it if you want to and start practicing it. This is what mentally strong people do to stop worrying. They don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. One of the worst things that will make you start to worry is feeling sorry for yourself. They give away their power. What does that mean? It means that they're not trying to always be the one in charge. They shy away from change. They waste energy on things. These are, excuse me, things mentally strong people don't do. They don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. They don't give away their power. They don't shy away from change. Change doesn't bother them. They don't waste energy on things they can't control. They don't worry about pleasing everyone. You're doing that, you gotta stop. They don't fear taking calculated risks. They don't fear alone time. Truth be known, I love to be alone at times. They don't dwell on the past. They don't make the same mistakes over and over again. They don't resent other people's successes. They don't give up after the first failure. They don't feel the world owes them anything. And they don't expect immediate results. That's what strong, mentally strong people do. So, here's what we studied tonight. We studied wise living will bring favor from God and man. Wise people take advice. Wise speech brings joy and healing, and worry will make you a coward and a cheat. So how do I want to wrap it up today? Well, he gives you one last verse, and he says this, In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. And as I go a little bit further, let me just tell it to you. Once a man told D.L. Moody that he was worried because he did not feel saved. Moody asked, Was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly he was, the man replied. Well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? How foolish I've been, the man said. It's not my feeling, it's Christ who saves. So the truth tonight is this, even though we're ending up with worry, and I think it's a good place to end up, we need to stop worrying. And it's, it's more than just saying it. We need to stop worrying for a couple of reasons, because your worry is not going to get you anywhere. It's like sitting in a rocking chair and just rocking back and forth. You go absolutely nowhere. And what you do is you waste time. There are some people that's all they do is worry. I know people that that's all they do. You give them, I remember my, my daughter, my one daughter, she was a worrywart. She's a mommy. She was a mommy when she was five. She was just always mothering something. And uh, she would worry about everything. She used to tell me all the time when I'd go out, she said, Dad, make sure you wear your seatbelt. Dad, make sure. As soon as I get out the door, Dad, you're going to wear your seatbelt. Dad, make sure you wear your seatbelt. I said, I'm going to ride my motorcycle today, and it has no seatbelt. And she says, well, Dad, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. So I'd come back home, and, she'd say, and when she'd look at me, I'd say, hey, I have a list 
before you start worrying about something, I'll put some things down so you can worry about because you're going to come up with some yourself. So worrying will waste your time. It really will. Let me give you another thing about worry right here. A recently licensed pilot was flying his private plane in a cloudy day. He wasn't very experienced in instrument landing. When the control tower was to bring him in, he began to get panicky. Then a stern voice came over the radio. You just obey instructions. We'll take care of the obstructions. So let me ask you a question tonight. How many of you would say, Pastor Mark, and be honest, I worry a lot. I don't know how to get this to everyone, but it's not going to help you a bit. What has your worrying ever done for you? What has it ever done for you? So let me leave you with this. Worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. That's all it does. It robs you of today. It makes you a coward and a cheat. Worrying doesn't change anything, but trusting in God changes everything. He has it all under control. Be a warrior, not a worrier. Let me go back to this one. Somebody's taking a picture of it. I don't think you got it. One more. Learning to live moment by moment, trusting God's provision for the situation, being thankful for his provision, focusing on the solver of my problems rather than my circumstances. Let me give you something. Some of you have similar situations. I laid in a hospital room 10 years ago, and I had stage 4 cancer. The um, prognosis wasn't good. It was an MD Anderson. I was supposed to be there three days to get intensive chemotherapy. I was there 18 days. The doctor said, send for your family. I told Cheryl, send for the family. He's not going to make it. Uh, doctors at home told my son, you need to go sit, be with your dad. He's not going to make it. Um, I contacted a fever. I had no immune system. I had no right blood cells, no red blood cells. I was getting transfusions. Um, they kept taking blood. Cheryl remember this. They kept taking blood every so many hours, lots of it, to try to get the infection away because the infection was going to kill me. I had lost the use of my legs. They were purple, and I had uh, clots all over my legs. They took me down and tried to find out where the blood clots were if they were going to go to my heart. They started doing everything they possibly could do, and I laid there that night and thought this could be the night. We all thought it could be the night. I heard Cheryl crying in the bedroom, in the bathroom, and uh, she was always positive about it, knew that God was going to heal me, but she was crying, saying, you know, she was watching me die. And um, I remember facing all that and realizing that that might be my last night and this flood came over me and I just every single worry I had left I was just sitting there was like I'm good <laughs> even though my body was bad I was good and I could tell you that out of out of personal personally be there let me just say something else I was never a worrier when they told me I had cancer of course all those things come through your head and all those those bad things come through especially when you have stage four and it's it's bad um, but once I got over that, and I was never a worrier before that, once I got over that, there is nothing I worry about right now. Nothing. I mean, how could you? If you got to that spot, you worried about your very life. What else? You have breath. You have life. Today I got up and God gave me breath. He gave me life. I feel great. How could I worry about things? Now, there's things to be concerned about, obviously. But understand that there's some things that are just out of your hands. And there's some things that are only in God's hands. And when you get to that point, your life takes a massive switch. And especially if you're a parent, a lot of times you worry about your kids. God loves your kids more than you love your kids. And he's going to take care of them. So one last thing tonight. If God were to write you a note, he would say this to you. My child, you worry too much. I've got this, got this. remember? Love your dad, God. So tonight, would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Lord, we are all guilty at one time or another for worrying. And though we've gone through Proverbs and through chapter, chapter 12 of Proverbs, 
and learn some things for living. Maybe the most important thing for us tonight, Lord God, is about our is about our very lives and the things we worry about. Places, people, situations, events. Lord, it just clouds up everything you're doing in our life. You've given us so much life. You've given us so much around us, Lord God. If we just sit down and appreciate it, and thank you for what we have, Lord. We wouldn't have to spend any moments in, in worrying. If we could replace our worry with thankfulness in everything you've given us, we'd have plenty of things to thank you for. So tonight, Lord God, I just pray that for every one of us, you delineate the worry, knock it down some, some steps, Lord, some notches in our lives. Help us, Lord God, to just live this powerful, overcoming life. Bless those who are here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.